What's up, everybody? This is uh, John coming from a hotel room here in Detroit. Uh, my wife and I just got done seeing the Amur After the Burial Tour. Um, seeing our friend Frank Finelli do lights and merch for the Amir guys. Um, sometimes when having friends on the road, you kind of have to go out of your way to see them and maintain the friendships. Speaking of maintaining friendships, this uh, episode of the podcast is with an old friend, Daniel Howie, formerly of the band Sugar Glider and currently with the band Mouth Sounds. Um, it's not really necessarily a band. It's, it's Daniel and, and a couple of guys, as you end up hearing. Um, Daniel and I ended up running into each other through me booking his band, Sugar Glider, on a tour with Harvard and Junior Astronomers, all bands from the Charlotte, North Carolina music scene. Um, we ended up staying in touch over the years after booking uh, that band, and once uh, Sugar Glider kind of called it a day, still maintained friendship and was kind of waiting for Daniel to do something, as most of the members, as you'll hear, ended up uh, forming other projects. And this is the first uh, music that Daniel has released under the Mouth Sounds moniker. Uh, his debut album, Sing or Swim, is coming out on February 28th, which will be next Tuesday. Um, so I'm going to kind of put a speed on this uh, podcast and get it out to help coincide with the release of the record and the last push for pre-orders and such. Um, Daniel and I end up kind of talking about the beginning of Sugar Glider, the what kind of caused the end of Sugar Glider, and what you know caused him to start the formation of Mouth Sounds and uh, where he sees the project going over the next little bit. Um, so... It's a kind of a long conversation, so without further ado, here's my conversation with Danny Howie of Mouth Sounds. Enjoy. Daniel Howie, how are you doing today? Doing well, John. Actually, Thanks it's, for... it's, it's it's this evening. I'm sorry this uh this dark room with just uh, faux lighting. Uh, yeah, I think we me. discussed that. We realized we we're in the same time zone. So uh, now that we us geographers and our uh, <laughs> knowledge of how the world works and time zones have figured that out, I guess we can we know we're on the same time zone. So it's it's eight twenty uh, where I am. What time is it where you are? Eight fourteen. Oh wow. <laughs> So we're talking six minutes here. Okay. Yes. Um, actually, isn't that weird? Like, you and I are. I do this so much on this thing. You and I are. I'm thirty. I'll be thirty three in September. So I think you and I are about the same age, give or take a year. Uh, you'll be thirty three in September. Yep. I'll be thirty three in September. So all right, double paradox. Aha. Um, what is your birthday then? Uh, September twenty sixth. Mine's the twentieth. I'll be, oh, I'm older. You, you got six days. <laughs> Your parents had sex with each other like at least a week before mine did, probably. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's how that works. Texting back in the 80s. And just so you know, that means you're like a New Year's or like an after Christmas baby. Uh, um, according to my dad, uh, I – this is kind of gross, but my dad made the comment when we – when he told me how my parents met and all that kind of stuff and the conception of me that apparently it happened uh, on Christmas, so he said – and that he made the joke that he left an extra present under the tree. And ah. then uh, 
if that wasn't gross enough, uh, actually, my <laughs> brother uh, was born the same day as I was, uh, two years apart. So, apparently, wow. my parents know how to make kids on the exact same day. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's good timing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I always think it's funny that uh, I have no concept of uh, geography or time zones or any of that stuff. And I feel like that's something most people probably understand or know just without having to look it up on their iPhone. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, so, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself for those who may not be as familiar with you as, as I I currently am. Yeah, I like to think that's probably almost everybody. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so again, you know, my name's Daniel Howie. Um, I am uh, currently a husband, father of two uh, cats, uh, Rambo and Princess Leia. My two cats. Rain, um, Rainbow or Rambo? Rambo, like okay. John Rambo, like okay. First Blood. All right. Yeah, way cooler. Yes. Um, <laughs> so uh, I guess the reason we're talking today is that, you know, you and I became acquaintances back uh, years ago when I was the front man and singer and, and, and played some other instruments in a band called Sugar Glider, which was uh, pretty much a, a, a staple of the Charlotte, North Carolina music scene, which Charlotte, North Carolina is where I live, and that's where the band was from. Uh, we did a good bit of touring. It was very melodic, indie, uh, kind of pop, rock, uh, a lot of traveling independently. Um, you know, the band started back in 2000 and 2002, 2003. So it was a high school um, band for you then? It was a high school band, yeah. It started off um, originally created by myself uh, and some friends, uh, particularly Chris Rigo, a friend of mine from high school. Um, he, uh, he played guitar and I played a little bit of guitar and some piano and could sing a little bit. And so we started puddling around with, with songs and ideas and eventually kind of got into a more solid lineup. Um, uh, a drummer that could, could play and could, it was more of a metal influenced drummer, Corey. I don't think you ever met him, Corey Lambert. Uh, and then Emily, uh, Aoyagi who played bass, um, both of them went to our high school too. Then we went to college. Um, I'm the oldest in the group. Um, Emily went to college. She's a year younger than me. Um, uh, and, uh, so we were spread around between probably 2004 to 2007, uh, uh, in 2003 to 2007. Didn't really get serious about touring until 2008. Um, toured independently for about five years, four years all over the U S booking our own tours, um, building a really solid following in Charlotte. Um, Got a lot of good opening spots for big bands like Silver Sun Pickups and Manchester Orchestra, Neon Trees, um, all of which we were able to do because we could pull seven, eight hundred, you know, nine hundred people uh, to Charlotte shows, just you know, headlining ourselves, which was good for Charlotte because Charlotte uh, traditionally was just a, it was just a, um, a hardcore scene that was really a banking city that tried to have a hardcore scene, so it wasn't a very active. <laughs> Uh, uh, kind of uh, showing. So we were this melodic kind of, you know, we had pianos in it, but we tried to sound, you know, I would sing a little louder and harder, Chris would play a little harder on guitar, um, just to fit in. And I think that kind of influenced the, the music um, a little bit. So things went well. We ended up doing South by Southwest in 2010 or 2011. Um, met with a uh, entertainment lawyer who actually uh, has ties with like Sumerian records and outer loop management. Um, and, uh, they took an interest in us. Uh, we put out our next EP. That was a little different than I thought it would be. We, we kind of parted ways with them after that. They were like, yeah, it's a little light for us. 
we're coming off of Poor Baby Zebra, which you know had some heavier stuff on it. Uh, we put out Lovers at Light Speed, which is an EP we put out um, in 2011, and got the attention of uh, a friend of theirs. Uh, and uh, it was a it was a subsidiary of Warner Brothers called Org Music, O R G, um, Original Recordings Group, I think is what it stood for. Um, we uh, got in talks with them to work with us, represent us. They wanted to handle some original bands. I think they had uh, Dot Hacker. Uh, which is the uh, Josh Klinghoffer, the guitarist from Red Hot Chili Peppers side project, which is pretty experimental type stuff, but really cool. Um, they also had um, Mike Watt um, of the Minutemen, formerly of Iggy Pop and the Stooges, um, Firehose, um, real famous punk bassist. Um, you know, they put out his recordings uh, and a couple other little bands. And so we signed with them, ended up working with Outer Loop Management, who decided to come back and bring us back into the fold and represent us now that we were signed. Um, jumped on agency group for booking and then started doing some even bigger tours. Started doing nationwide with um, bands like The Almost, um, Paper Route. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of a few other bands that were kind of mid to I think we were about to do something with a Great Big Pile of Leaves. Um, but then uh, recorded a, a record under that contract um, we had a member of the band leave shortly after recording that, Emily, the bass player, uh, and then got Robbie, uh, who you know. Um, I didn't even mention Bobby Matthews coming into the band in 2009. I don't know why I didn't mention that. He was, he's awesome. Um, so it was Bobby, Robbie, Chris, and myself. Um, and then around 2000, I want to say it was like 2013, end of 2013, August or something like that, um, you know, after a myriad of issues we were running into, just personnel-wise, um, it's pretty irreconcilable. Um, decided to end the band. Uh, it was my decision. Decided to do it, and uh, it was really more of a decision between more people leaving the band because of this reason or not. Um, and I didn't want any more people to leave, and I didn't want uh, to keep going without those people because I thought that was what made us who we were. Um, and it was already hard enough to, to move on without Emily, so I ended the band. I I made the decision. I was the key man on the record deal, on the clause, and I said, hey, if we don't fix this, it's, I'm out and it's done, and it didn't get fixed. And so I was out, and it was done. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, that's my story as, as, as far as Sugar Glider goes. Um, that's probably the reason that we're talking now because that's how John and I met. Uh, plan a show up in Grand Rapids, right? Yep. Um, at the uh, intersection. It, the intersection, and it was like a, a crossroad or a street corner or something <laughs> like that. Uh, and so, you know, we, we met up there. We were on tour with Harvard at the time, I think, uh, and Junior Astronomers, correct? Yep. Um, and uh, became fast friends. We visited a few times. I think we stayed with you probably once or twice. Have we played up there twice? You played. Yeah, you played up here yeah. twice because you did uh, that tour you were talking about. We stayed in contact. I tried getting you on my own, but I think at that point, like you had said, you were on the agency group, uh, yeah. and the lady you had booking for you uh, didn't <laughs> seem to think that I could handle booking you guys uh, or keep – uh, I don't know. It's it's really funny because when I had reached out and I was like, "Hey, I'm friends with these guys," and maybe that was the wrong foot to lead off with, but uh, I I had kind of made the comment like, "Yeah, you know, like I I've known these dudes for since I booked them when they're on the package tour with Harvard." 
Uh, we've discussed, you know, trying to get them out here, and it seems like, you know, with a new record and, you know, the eyes they see with that getting ready to come out, um, it'd be a good time to try to, you know, get something out here. And I think it was to coincide with you going west to go on that, uh, the Almost Tour. Um, yeah. And we were talking about some things, and I, I think, like I said, I think it just kind of fell apart because I think she didn't think I could do the job of getting you guys a like at a good venue and with good bands and so on and so yeah. forth, uh, which, you know, it's whatever. I, I've kind of gotten that in dealing with bands and, and with agents, but it was kind of laughable because it's like, you know, I don't think, and it's no disrespect to you or where you guys were at that point, but it's like, I don't think if it were for someone like me trying to reach out to get you guys that had had a working history with you and seeing right, how yeah. you performed in front of, a, a you know, my local, my local scene, and yeah. the bands I could put you with to do the best I could for you as a, as a headliner at that point. Yeah. Uh, I don't really think anyone's trying to bring you through, you know, Michigan or Grand Rapids. Cause I mean, really you guys didn't play Michigan that much. So it's like, yeah. you know, it's on your way. It's, you know, potentially some quick money that you could make, you know, why wouldn't you? But right. uh, it's just one of those things like it, it was kind of unfortunate, but then shortly thereafter, uh, we were trying to do that. You ended up on a tour with uh, acquaintances of uh, the Michigan scene from here, Squid the Whale, and yeah. uh, whatever that band was. Orphan, the Orphan the Poet, I think. I feel like it was a way longer title than that, but yeah. Uh, yeah. And that dude shushed me while I was talking to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I, other than the, the horrible drinking night that I did that night with you guys, which is still probably yes. the most... Uh, the most irresponsible I've been before going, having to go to work the next day. Cause I had just yeah. completely lost track of time hanging out with you guys. <laughs> uh, which that's still a story that lives, lives on here in this household. Um, then Chris Rigo walking in while Bridget's, uh, <laughs> while Bridget was making shots for herself and goes, what are you drinking? Paint? And she was making those, uh, Superman <laughs> shots. Yeah. And then you guys are at least lucky enough to have witnessed, uh, one of my favorite now defunct local bands, uh, Beast in the field, and just Dude, that was your, great. I remember that. I told somebody that. about that yesterday, or not yesterday, but last week, about just the wall of amps and the guitar and drums, how loud it was. I yeah. told somebody about it the other day. It's it's impressive. Like, and I think if no one, the only band that I can compare it to that people somewhat know is the band Jucifer. Yeah, because uh, they kind of are the same thing. It's a guitar and a drummer and a wall of amps and all that shit. But uh, it was always one of those things. Like, I I tried showing that band to so many people and. Uh, was just one of those things I was like, well, at least I got to show you guys. And uh, I remember Chris being very enamored with the vintage setup of everything. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was a good time. Um, kind of uh, piggybacking off of what you had said about uh, about the Sugar Glider stuff, though, with, uh, with the lineup changes and then subsequently like getting ready to kind of put an end to the band... Was it really hard to do that with it being something that you had been a part of for so long and, and it being kind of like, you know, people kind of hold on to things from their high school era, like with a lot more fever of a, you know, like, this was mine, this was my thing, this is, you know, who I became at a time where I was, you know, most people figure out who they are and what they want to be. Uh, was it kind of hard to, to let it go or was it just one of those things that at that point it had kind of ran its course for you? Sure. So I think that there's a couple of things I should address first to, to make them clear to you. I think, um, you know, for me, I think I realized pretty early on, I was really, I've always been really lucky to be able to, to make music and create music that people, at least enough people seem to enjoy for me to be able to do it. 
Um, and I've been able to do that pretty easily. It hasn't really required a lot of work. It's very, it's been very self gratifying. So, what I mean by that is, you know, I've been able to do kind of like write and add to other people's, you know, writing uh, in a way that has allowed me to to just do what I like, and then people enjoy it. So I've never really tried to do something that wasn't something I would really enjoy. Um, I always looked at songwriting as an opportunity to create a song that you think should exist, but yet does not, right? So you're, you're creating something that you wish was a song uh, so that it is a song, so that you can listen to it. So that's why I always think it's kind of funny because I, I actually do listen to a lot of the stuff that recordings I was a part of, and to me it makes a lot of sense because it's not like I'm like, man, I'm listening to him like, oh my gosh, I'm so cool, man, listen to how good I am or how, how cool this part is for me that I wrote it. It's because I I wrote the song for me. It's self gratifying. It's you know I wrote it because I wanted it to be a song, or I recorded it this way because I wanted it. That's how it felt right. Um, so the songwriting process for me, it's always been right right up next to the core of me, as close as you can get to, to the middle of my insides. That's where all this has come from, musically. And, and Sugar Glider was a big part of that because that was my development in learning how to do it and do it in front of people. It wasn't something I was ever really comfortable about before that. Um, so it was definitely very special, um, but you know I think I also took a really humble approach, and I think that might have been different than maybe uh, you know we're all a little different, but I think in the band I probably took the most probably the most annoyingly humble approach to the process because to me, and looking back on it, I think I I sold it short a little bit, but I, it was always hard for me to think like you know because none of us were really amazing musicians, you know like I kind of you know I kind of feel like Bobby was the most talented person in the band to be honest. Now, like most like mechanically naturally gifted musician um and he was the drummer so like he never he would get noticed a lot but you know to to, to have your drummer be that person isn't really normal for a melodic you know pop rock kind of band um so to me i took i think I, what probably came across to, to some of our bandmates at times is an annoyingly humble approach to it i would tell people look i don't know how to play guitar i really don't i mean i just like to write what I just use it as a thing, and I make it work and make the noises I wanted to make. I don't know how to sing. I just sing. You know, because to me, it seems like it's very simple. You just like using a tool. You pick up something. You need a. You say you need something to jimmy a door open. It doesn't matter if it's something that's made to jimmy a door open, right? If you can stick it in the crack and, and get leverage with it, you're going to use it if you have to, right? Right. So for me, that's been my approach to instruments. That's been my approach to music. It's a means to an end, and then that kind of circles back to my my previous comment you know I've, I've always written stuff that i've wanted to be songs i've wanted to create it you let you know be the conduit for it to come out into the world so i think when i when i look back at the band transitioning and losing members i realized that i played but a but just a role in making sugar glider what it was right so i don't claim to be any huge part of of what it was um whether that's the case or not to me it only sounds as good as it did or as it does because of who was a part of it, right? Regardless of how big your part in it is, um, it wouldn't be the same. If it was the Daniel Howie experience and it was just up <laughs> to me to choose everything, it probably wouldn't sound as good and it definitely wouldn't sound the same, right? And I realized that really early on. Um, uh, and I think that, you know, when when members started to leave, it was really hard when Emily left. It was really hard for me. I remember we played her farewell show and I was crying through all of the work and what may come, which is our closer for that, which is a really just um, emotionally um, drenched 
song. It's not even about that, but it's just about loss and, and moving on and coping with coping with having to, to to realize how important and how fleeting things can be. So to me, like just having one person leave, and you know, Emily was probably the only other most humble person in the band who was just somebody who picked up the instrument and did amazing things with it, and probably didn't really ever think of herself as being something that would, you know, somebody who would play a, a bass guitar and contribute as much as she did to some people's lives, but she really did. I mean, she had a, a unique style that, you know, was not how you learn how to play bass. Hers was somebody who can barely play guitar and gets handed a bass and says, hey, pretend this is a, a guitar and figure out how to play some parts and write some stuff, right? Um, so I think her approach was very similar too, as for all of ours, but, you know, so she, she left... Um, you know, in 2012, probably into 2012, something like that. Um, and that was really hard. You know, we got Robbie and I think if it had been anybody else that joined the band, I probably wouldn't have been able to continue. But Robbie is just such a ball of energy and sunshine <laughs> and positive vibes and just so, to be so wise and so smart, he, he's so, he comes across as so disarming and so innocent, and I, there's just such a charm about that. There's such a, such a positive influence in a time where we really needed it. Um, so I think, I like to think that Robbie, you know, at least helped extend the end of that, uh, that band in a way that was enjoyable. Um, you know, so, you know, after that, you know, when, when he and, and Bobby were threatening to leave the band, you know, it was like, it was like, okay, like, we've been through this before. It was hard enough the first time. The problem hasn't been fixed. I, to me, I, the reason that I wanted to let it go wasn't because I was over it or it had run its course. It was really because it meant so much to me. I mean, I know it meant a lot to all of us, which, you know, maybe that makes me selfish to feel like I should affect the, where it went. But I kind of, I kind of felt like it was sort of like a, uh, a mom and dad splitting up and trying to protect the kids, which to me, the kids were people who ever cared about anything we did. And I didn't want the real reason or, you know, any of the personal reasons why it specifically broke down to be what it was about. I wanted people to remember it for the good things that we did and the songs and the contributions and the hard work and the heart and the effort um, and the camaraderie. And, you know, the fact that we weren't musicians meant that every show was – uh, it was an underdog's attempt to try to be successful at, at conquering a song they weren't talented enough to probably pull off live. <laughs> and so to me, it was almost like uh, it, you know, you, it was something that we, I think we rooted for ourselves, and I think people saw that in what we were doing. It was just trying to do something ambitious that was, was really out of our reach uh, to try to pull off and to keep going. And I think you know, for me, the hard part, like I said, was – having to be the person who, because nobody would fix anything else uh, and we couldn't go forward, it was being having to be the person to pull it off the tracks and end it because I didn't want to see it get any worse than it was. I didn't want to see it derail and devolve into something, you know, angry or, you know, any more spiteful or, you know, like, I, again, I, I think it's just – it's just that's really the best analogy I can use is trying to take the high road to, to save the kids. You know what I mean? Like from from the the parts of it that though they're though they're real and though they were things that we dealt with as a group, you know, or tried to, um, they were unavoidable and you know, I really I, I couldn't I wouldn't do it any different. I think that the contributions any band makes um, once you record a song and release it, it's not yours anymore. You know, like 
I don't think it belongs to you. I don't think you know, after that, you know, you've already let it go. It, it's gone. It's out into this. Into it becomes other people's. It's not even you anymore, really. Every show you play after a record is, is done and you've recorded it is you covering yourself. You're a cover band of yourself. So, you know, to me, I, I think that. Uh, the fact that those songs can still exist and they're snapshots from a time when things were really solid and when things were working really well and when it was, you know, a really solid group of individuals making really honest music, um, that's awesome. I, I couldn't, I don't regret a second of it, man. I mean, I, just for myself, you know, like to have that, that my, my life, my becoming an adult through the exploration of music and my abilities and my friends' abilities hearing myself become a, a man through that is just enough in and of itself. And I haven't even touched on the fact that it always blew my mind that anybody ever came to see anything we ever did. Cause why would they spend their time and their money doing that? Right. You could be doing anything. You could be doing anything else and you're going to spend 10 bucks, come down buy 50 bucks worth of merch, you know, hang out with us, give us a place to stay. I, I don't deserve any of that. And I don't think any of us did. And the fact that we got that just by doing what we love to do is still blows my mind to this day, and it will until I die. So um, it's crazy, man. I, I just a wild ride, crazy wild ride. In re-listening back to the eyes they see, uh, which I do pretty frequently, um, which is funny because I remember when that record came out. It's kind of the the thing that a lot of bands do when it's like their first bigger bigger record on a label or something where you take some of the the best songs off of the the like self-release yes. thing maybe redo them re-record them whatever or just remaster them and then basically like you're taking an ep's worth of old material throwing it on with five six new songs and to the per to the average person who doesn't know you exist in the first place this is a collection of new songs for the longtime yeah. fan it's it's kind of the it's kind of an easier way to transition into what I think you were doing the newer stuff you were doing on the new record because you had the old familiar things that you had done and then you were putting them in conjunction with these new songs. Um, I remember not kind of really digging some of the, like, uh, Ocean I Love You. I kind of didn't like the newer take on it. Uh, yeah. But then I realized that that's on me. That's not on you because it's, I'm familiar with a version of it and, you know, I need like I as the listener need to understand that like maybe there were things about it that you wanted to do couldn't afford to do didn't know how to do whatever um so this maybe the new version was the inter like the way it always was as you heard it in your head um but going back through and listening to that record though there's there's some kind of lyrically some some interesting themes that are discussed and I mean even in uh Lost in the Woods like I I feel like in hindsight, after the band kind of had called it a day, I feel like that song almost sort of foreshadowed whatever was going on within within the band, sort of. And maybe I'm yeah. reading too much into the lyrics, but, uh, you know, as you listen to stuff like that, I, I mean, it's kind of one of those you're like, okay, like, is the writing on the wall here? And you're, you're kind of, if this was the last song or the last album as it ended up being, it's like, okay, like, were the was some of these things, like, how it was or... Again, am I just reading too much into the lyrics? Uh, but was that like kind of a conscious thing, sort of like just kind of putting out like without necessarily coming right out and saying like you know having these issues, whatever internally? But yeah. Was uh. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of weird that to me they think that like the first the lead off single off that record is kind of the one that discusses some of the band's problems uh, yeah. in such a poppy way. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, I always wanted to know, like, how did that song come about, and how was how was the reaction when the lyrics got put over the music, and you're kind of like, this is what I'm presenting as the vehicle for the music everyone came up with. Like, was everyone all right with it, or was it kind of a surprise to people? Well, I think you're right about the, especially the first part, you know, that being our first record, we were using somebody else's money to record. There was a lot more pressure. We were working with a producer um, who, you know, we had never worked with. Previously, we'd worked with the same guy and self-produced with him uh, for the previous three or four records. So we were, had a pretty good kind of like understanding and comfort level in the studio and, you know, even going into writing it, knowing that the, the pressure was what it was and that this could either be something that, I mean, just like with any band, when you sign a deal, you know you enter in sort of a lottery of, uh, or at least the next level of visibility, right? So you know that, well, okay, now there's a better chance. We've increased our chances probably by a certain percentage that if we make a good record, people are actually going to hear it or it's going to catch on or it could catch wind or get something on some show or something with some uh, publishing deal that'll that'll make it lift off. So I think there's that added pressure. I think um, there was also a lot of kind of confusion for us and for between management and, and label about – okay, we don't want this to seem like a legacy band. We want to package it as something new. And that didn't per se affect the the songwriting, but that kind of, I think, messed with our heads a little bit. Um, you know, by that point, I th I'm pretty sure Emily was checked out. Um, so I think that her her resistance to, to being a part of the writing was expressed in her beginning to play with other bands. She was playing with some other groups and she would play bass and some other things. Obviously, she was, I don't think she was happy. And I think that affected her writing. That was felt in our writing sessions. I think Chris shut down. I think Bobby shut down. I think I shut down. And I think because of that, you know, one of us, instead of making this kind of a collaborative thing per song, would take up the reins per song and just really have a whole idea figured out. Um, but I think that when it, when it comes out that way, which I'm, you know, I think I'm probably guilty of this for a lot of the songs on there. I think I did a lot of like, I think I tried to pick up the line a lot on some of the songwriting on the newest record um, by like so I started creating like full tracks for things and be like, hey, this is the idea I have. And I think I was trying to compensate for that lack of unity and that lack of which we all felt we were all you know guilty of. Um, but I think that you're right. I think I think whether I meant to or not, I think that the, especially the first track, the lyric lyrically, it was because lyrics are usually the last thing I write for any song. Um, and they kind of come out of the, the subtext of where I'm at and, and, and the feel of the song. And it really starts more – that's actually where the – we'll talk about mouth sounds later, but that's actually where that comes from. But anyway, I'll, I'll, I, I digress. Um, you know, I think that the, the songwriting process itself was affected by the band not being uh, on the same page and us not knowing where to go and uh, having that insecurity. Um, so I think Emily was checked out from the beginning, and I think that affected all of us. Um, you know, it's it's a record that I think we is very uncomfortable because we know where it comes from as a band. We weren't in the right place. Um, you know, I think who we worked with, they were great. They, you know, they had a great approach, something that we, we really weren't prepared for. And I think that ultimately the mistake we made on that record is I think we tried to make a really polished pop record on a on an on an indie budget with a big bigger producer. And I don't think that really works. I think I think the songwriting was for a really shiny uh, expensive recording and I think that the production we were kind of we were we were at the at the mercy of the limit of our budget with with what we had to work with and I think that includes the the guy that we produced with and 
who we recorded with, who all did an awesome job, and they're all really talented people. I think we were just kind of at at the the we were kind of victims of us wanting to write this big pop record to explode and not having the budget to make it sound like it needed to sound. Because I think ultimately it ended up sounding a little bit a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit naked, a little bit just kind of like. Uh, uh, well, almost like a really shiny sounding demo, and and I think again, I I agree that I think almost all of the the fault with that lies on us as songwriters. I don't think it it's as much with production or anybody else. I think it's specifically with me. I think you know, like I said, I think I tried to pick up the slack for what I saw was kind of a a ship that was taken on water, um, and and tried to really just push through that, knowing that we had this big record coming out. And again, I'm not I don't mean to sound like I I wrote more of this record than anybody else i just remember specifically us entering a phase where i was bringing fully formed like segments of songs together like strung together and then trying to kind of lay those down as like hey this is what we should base what we write off uh, of and things like that I mean, like obviously, you know, we, were, we were all contributing but yeah. uh, so i don't know it's it's been kind of interesting like i said like going back through and kind of knowing you guys a little bit personally like i remember it sounds really <laughs> I don't know if anyone outside of your local area will probably have the same same vibe. But the weird thing is, is like I remember, uh, I remember where I was when I was texting one of you about uh, getting another shirt because I had my owl shirt and people were asking about it and all that kind of stuff. And I remember, I think it was Robbie that was like, "Well, it's going to be a collector's item soon because we're done." And I was at Founders, which was like just kind of down the road from the venue you played at. And yeah. being like really bummed and like showing Bridget like oh they're they're done, and being yeah. like kind of upset about it, even though it's like one of those things where it's like oh it's a band I only saw technically like two times and whatever, right, yeah. but it's like it's still one of those things. It's like when you find a good band and and you kind of like attach to it personally, like it it's kind of means more I guess to you when something like that happens and you feel like like oh no like my friends like something's wrong or like you know whatever. Um, right. But going back and re-listening to the record, like I there's just kind of like I said like. Almost like I don't even know if this is the right word, but like it's kind of like on some of the songs, like a little bit of angst to it that like wasn't really yeah. prevalent on on the other records or the other EPs or whatever. Um, so I always kind of wondered like how much of that was just kind of maybe like the issues that kind of led to uh, everything. But I never really like I mean, kind of without like getting into anything. Like I know some of it was just like you said, like just some some stuff going on between band members and. I think, like you said, there was like some disagreements about like the label stuff and how the record was supposed to be or what it was, sure. you know, whatever. Um, sure. But it's always it's always kind of shitty because I felt like right around that same time, like Harvard kind of called it a day without officially calling it a day. Yeah. Uh, so it was kind of like one of those weird things where it's like, man, everyone on this tour that I really liked, and you know, we're <laughs> we're finally like the hard work was starting to pay off for everybody. It's like now all yeah. of a sudden everyone's like, well, no, now this is done. And it's like. It's like, man, that sucks. Like you spent, like I mean, I didn't know it was that long of a time that you were in the band, but it's like to to spend that much time and to finally get like to the point where like you're kind of seeing all that hard work pay off and come to fruition. Yeah. Like some of the other things you're trying to do as a band, and then you just end up like, well, it's not working, so I'm done. Yeah. Like it just kind of yeah. sucks. Yeah, and I think you know, I think too that the the thing the thing that not that it matters at this point, but I think that the you know, for people that really cared, you know, it, it was something that we worked on for a while. Um, and it was something that we, it's not like we just, it came up one day and we said, ah, you know what, forget it. This is really hard to handle. And, 
uh, awkward and we don't want to deal with this. I mean, it's not like this was something that came up overnight. You know, it was something that we, we really tried and tried and tried to get past and it just kept coming up and it kept coming up and, you know, right, right or wrong, it's just one of those things that you have a, a, a shelf life for something and it lasts as long as it does, just like with anything else. And, you know, I think it's it would be um, – it would be terrible for it have never to happen to to have happened and us never gotten together. So I think, regardless of what happens going forward or what happens now, I'm I, I couldn't be more happy and more proud of of what we made and what we did, regardless of how anything goes down or doesn't go down or uh, you know no regrets on on my end. And I'm sure nobody has any nobody major regrets. I think it was well worth it for everybody. On the uh, flip side of that, is there ever been the the loose talk of maybe even getting back together for one local show and just kind of like, because the way you guys ended, there was no real official last show, a hometown show to kind of say like your farewells and all that. Was there ever or has there been maybe talks of doing like legitimately one last show, get everyone that was ever involved in the band back together for, you know, like maybe have a, I'm sorry, I forgot her name, Amy, was that her name? Who? Uh, Old bass player? Emily. Emily, sorry. I always thought yeah. it was Amy. Um, was there, like, you know, have Emily come back, play bass, have, like, maybe the original drummer come back, play a couple of songs from, like, the fir- uh, first record, and just kind of, like, have a, a, a proper farewell and have, you know, proper closure on on that band that, you know, for the fans, for yourselves, or whatever. Um, has that ever been tossed around, or is it just kind of, like, a too little, too late kind of thing on that? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's never been tossed around, and I'd say it's probably too little too late. Um, you know, um, I, I like to think, I like to think that um, if you can think back to a time in your life where things were really great, like your favorite, a lot of people choose like college or maybe high school or um, when they got married or, you know, I like to think that for for us for at least for myself i can't speak for anybody else specifically but for myself and then i think for people who really enjoyed it you know it's never going to be like it was before and i always knew that even i in fact would tell myself that and i'd tell the band that before shows that I, that were really like milestones for us i was like guys you know like it's never going to be like this again whether we explode and we're famous one day and we're doing this for a living or you know we'd all die in a car wreck tomorrow on the way to the next gig it's never going to be <laughs> like this again and so so keep it, you know, remember it, like, it, it's special, you know, this is a, a time where nobody, you know, if they know who we are years from now, this was a time where we can't go back to this, right, you know, or if it's a time where we're not in a band anymore, we're going to think back to these these kind of nights, um, and, you know, living in that moment is important, especially when you do something that's weird as being in a touring band, even if it's on a small circuit or small level, um, so, no, there's not been any talks about it, I don't think that that's something that would ever happen, um, we don't talk, you know, uh, at all. Um, and things just really aren't good. Um, as far as personal relationships, um, you know, um, I haven't talked to, I mean, I talked to Bobby, I see him a good bit, but Emily, I don't, I don't see very often. She kind of, she was always that way though. She does kind of her own thing. Robbie is working, he's married now. And, but Chris, I, I don't ever talk to Chris. I haven't talked to Chris, uh, in four years, at least, you know, maybe except for a text or something here, between now and then uh, every once in a while and I don't think he talks to anybody else in the band either so um, I, I don't think that that's something that would come up and I don't and I don't know that it needs to to be honest so makes our not out of a lack of not out of a lack of, of not caring about it or not not ever thinking about it because I definitely have but I don't see that happening makes the uh, dinner we all had then when we were all in Charlotte seem like it was 
even better then because I, I kind of picked up on that when everyone was kind of catching up. It seemed like people who hadn't talked to each other in a while, but like I'm yeah. not going to make it awkward and be like, hey, so I'm here hanging out with all of you guys. What, you guys don't hang out? Like, so. <laughs> well, I think you got to be able to be in a room first. I'm pretty sure Robbie and Bobby and I can all be in a room, but uh, well, much clearly. past that, I don't know that we'd have any success. <laughs> I was going to say, we've been uh, talking about coming down there because we had a good time at uh, Snug Harbor when we were down there. Dude, you're welcome anytime. You can, I'm, I'm in my underwear right now. Um, <laughs> I'm just laying in my robe on my couch. I was going to say, it looks like a robe, but I wasn't quite sure if it was a robe or a, yeah, a nice I got my, sweater. Yeah, I got my, pant, my underwear on down here. See? Ah. Well, fair nice. enough. <laughs> <laughs> For those who uh, didn't see, I got the full view of... Daniel in his underwear, which is fine because yep. I'm pretty sure it was retribution for me being in my underwear in my own house when you were here. Uh, yeah, it's okay, man. We're close like that. Yeah. Actually, speaking of uh, you being here uh, and being close, how hard was it for you to be on tour uh, being married? I mean, I know that's something that a lot of people you yeah. know, go through, but I don't necessarily know that it's something that – I mean, and I, don't, and I don't remember how long you said you had been married uh, at that point, but – I mean, for yeah. someone, obviously, it's something that your wife knew that you were in a band and, and touring on yeah. even the smallest of levels if it was just around, like, a tri-state area or whatever. But um, I remember, like, you know, when you came home from the show and you were here, like, just sitting on the couch and talking to your wife for, like, an hour or so and yeah. and feeling bad because I felt like, you know, I'm trying to hang out and, like, you know, taking you to, like, the, the other bars and all that kind of stuff. Like, I felt like I kept you away from being able to talk to her and I, maybe that's just me being an empathetic type of person, but, uh, how hard was it to, to be on the road as much as you were like being probably newly married? Well, you know, I think, uh, not to, not to just sound like a, a total, um, a total, just, uh, overly grateful, ridiculous, uh, idealist, but you know, to me, like, there's not really room in anybody's life to fully love two things or more than one thing I should say. I think, I think people can be in love with two people, but when you're in love with two people, that doesn't really work out, right? You can't, you're sacrificing somewhere. Yeah. You have to sacrifice somewhere. You're either loving something half as much as the other, but with, with, with Naomi, with my wife, like she, she bought on, bought into this a while back before we were touring a lot. And, but she knew that was something we would do. And she, she cares a lot for me. She wants me to be happy, you know, just like a, a good, a good supporting partner would. Um, and you know, it, it wasn't easier to be away from her, but at the same time, for me to be able to be lucky enough to have somebody that I cared that much about care about me and wait for me to come back, but for me to be able to leave them to go do something that I also loved as much, but in a different way, you know, it, it just, my, my heart and my mind just every day of my life have, especially during those years, just exploding with an unending need to feel grateful and to, to let that out somehow. And that came out, I think, through music. I mean, I think specifically with the eyes they see. My favorite song on that album is Hole in My Heart. Um, and that's that's 100% about, about what she's given me in uh, our marriage and being able to love those kind of two things. Um, you know, I... I, that's the that's the one song that I actually listened to off of that record because <laughs> I think it's the one that came across most genuine to me um, uh, as far as how it came from song idea to to form at the end. Um, but yeah, so being being on tour and being married is really tough, um, and it was only made easy by the fact that I loved what I did, got to do on the road so much. Um, 
that was in, I knew that she was there waiting for me. So, and I trusted that and we have a really good foundation and we were able to cultivate that over the years. Um, so again, I, I think just being so lucky, it, it was only easy enough to do because of, uh, the fact that I loved getting to be in sugar glider and tour and do what I love to do musically enough to keep me distracted while I was gone. That makes sense. No, it totally does. Um, so with Sugar Glider ending, you it's always interesting to me like being being friends with a lot of people in bands, uh, you know, whether it be various levels of success, whatever we want to call successful. Yeah. Um but like actually it's funny. I remember the conversation I think it was you and uh Jason from Harvard had about you trying to get him a job at Urban Outfitter. I want to say it was there's because the whole i was gonna say because the whole tour package was here and like everyone was talking over everybody i vaguely remember who was talking to who i never hired people for urban outfitters so i don't know like i don't remember someone worked for urban outfitter though and jason i guess needed a job for a few weeks or a month or whatever uh in between a tour and that was anybody in sugar glider actually okay well i mean everyone was when you were walking around in your underwear drinking jack daniels that's probably why you don't remember (laughs) I do remember a lot about that night, but there's, there's, no, that was when you guys were all here. That I didn't drink Jack Daniels that night. Are um, you sure? Are you sure? I, I am positive uh, because right. no one, because at that point no one was drinking heavily, uh, but there was a lot of smoke going around, which surprised me. Um, I... But uh, regardless of that, like you ended up uh, with Sugar Glider ending, you ended up getting what I call a big boy job, yeah. uh, which I was, no offense to you, I was pleasantly surprised at the title you had because i typically i think of you know most people in bands they don't have unless they went to college and have some semblance of a work history doing something within a specific career field uh typically they work you know very entry-level jobs because they know like well i'm gonna be gone in a month so fuck it i can yeah. get i can get a mcjob and it's okay because i don't i just need it for a steady paycheck for a little yeah. bit um yeah so was that was and I forget exactly what your title is or was. Um, sure. But was that something that you went to school for and kind of had more of a uh, – were kind of always constantly working in? And, and again, like you'll, I think it was something in like an, like something computers or analytics or something like that I want to say. I'm probably way no, off. <laughs> that's okay. I'll fill you in. Yeah, so no, so I studied communications and mass media in college. And, and really all that was was a, a way for me to figure out – how not to be manipulated by by the media because I really just completed that major because of how devious and how terrible I, I thought the industry sounded. Uh, <laughs> the music industry that. or all industries? No, the the industry of, of just uh, uh, basically marketing, advertising. When I was younger, you know, I was very my rebellious phase came late. I was like twenty. I was like twenty one years old, and that's when we started writing stuff like uh, off of uh, We Cracked the Sky and stuff. It was very like Muse inspired like earlier Muse, like Origin of Symmetry and like uh, Absolution, like that era of Muse. So it was, it was very like somewhat like anti-establishment. Yeah, quasi-political, anti-establishment and like uh, proliferation of, of, of media to influence you to do things. And so anyway, so I finished that degree and, and that, that degree really only helped, helped me in a sense that I think that I learned, you know, how to how to be responsible for myself, show up to class on time, study, learn some things, um, met a lot of people. It really opened my eyes and my mind to how many types of people there are and ways of 
life and living there are in the world just because it's a I came from a small town before that um, but the, the big boy job that you're referring to I got I I didn't have any experience in it was a uh, I became a recruiter a technical recruiter and essentially all that is is uh, and I was working with a, a really awesome company a little mid, uh, mid-sized company called associate staffing uh, in Charlotte and all I did was we you know I, I knew somebody who I knew two people who worked there and I had been looking for a job and I knew I wanted something where I could kind of begin to build a foundation for myself so I wanted to get something other than a you know part-time job or a retail or customer service so I got into that learned how to you know have conversations with essentially uh, IT candidates for jobs so we would have companies that our company would work with to find talent IT talent so people who were developers or coders or you know people who did break fix on computers um, and we would find those individuals in the job market and then place them with that company's openings when they'd have them so my job was to call those individuals and say hey I've got this job it pays X amount of dollars um, they're looking for people that can do X, Y, and Z. Uh, it's with a great company, you know, good hours. What do you think about that? And convince them to take the job, right? And uh, I did really well at that for for about a year, year and a half, and then they promoted me to an account manager doing the same thing. So then, instead of talking to the people that uh, are trying to get a job, I'm talking to the hiring managers at the companies who need people, right? Trying to build relationships. It's essentially, it's sales. Uh, did that for a year or two, um, and then after that, had an opportunity. Uh, to work for a company called Red Ventures, and that's where I work now. Um, it's a it's a tech driven marketing and sales company. What I do for them is is essentially kind of the same thing, but I I interview people who do sales uh, for the job at Red Ventures, which is the inside sales representative. So uh, I basically interview, meet people every day. It's a lot like being on tour. I get to know them. I talk to them about their life, their experiences, their job, you know, why they want to work at Red Ventures and it's a really forward-thinking progressive company and to be honest, probably the closest thing I've found uh, to, to be genuinely, uh, honestly inspiring because there's a lot of really intelligent people there that work there I work with um, and I'm not just saying that because I work there now. I don't think they would probably hear this but if they did, I think they would agree that there's also a lot of intelligent people they work with and it's a fast-growing company and I've I've been really lucky to be honest. Um, didn't have any trouble making the transition from being a musician, and I'm the same guy I was. Um, it, it hasn't changed, and the the big boy jobs haven't changed me. I think I think that what I always probably had in my corner going was that you know I think I've always been pretty authentic with people. I have always had a genuine interest in people and getting to know people, meeting people, talking about life experiences, and talking about things. And I think that naturally put me into like a a human resources, uh, talent acquisition type path, right? Right. Um, so I think that's that's how I ended up in it. And honestly, no, I didn't have a lot of experience. I had to, I had to get the first job I had, that staffing job. Uh, I interviewed on that, and really, all I could talk about was how I, you know, ran the the front desk at my dad's gym and how I was in Sugar Glider. So I had to sell myself already uh, to get that job, right? And then that job became another job, and then now I'm here. So it's funny uh, in talking with that because. Knowing that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about you know transitioning from the band into working a, a you know a job like a full time job that's not an entry level job per se, uh, in talking with a friend of mine, T.J. Miller from the band Still Remains, uh, I had kind of discussed with him because he was sort of in the same boat. Like Still Remains was a band that he started at a young age, did you know you know got signed to Roadrunner, toured around for a while, put out two records. Um, that I was like, you know, how hard is it to come? To be in a, a full time band for you know a decade or so, yeah. and then have to, 
you know, when that's done, basically have to figure out how you get a job. To me, as someone who understands that, like, there are a lot of skills and assets from band people, like, whether it be, you know, selling yourself or starting your own business, especially once yeah. they get signed and it being an LLC and uh, dealing with contracts and putting out things, you know, by a due date and, you know, promoting, marketing and, you know, maybe sometimes graphic design or, you know, there's a lot yeah. of things that you can apply to, you know, there various, really are. various jobs. But I don't think the average person really stops and thinks about how someone being in a band like can be hireable because of these other skills that they've learned over the years of, of doing things. Um, so with your job, I didn't. It sounded way more tech involved than I think I thought it was, which that's on me. Yeah. But it still was one of those things. Like I was kind of impressed that you were able to get like a pretty decent job so quickly out of the band so i always kind of wondered was it something that you had been doing and working on uh you know some of those like some people just have jobs that are like you know really good and they are able like they just have flexible schedules at their job and people understand like you know you can kind of do it from the road or whatever so i didn't know if that was kind of the case or if it was more just you know right time right place and you just kind of you know did the same thing with the band where you busted your ass and you know proved yourself and got you know got a better gig as you got more experience um, I'm going to tell you the same thing I told my last uh, – the boss at my first job Eat that it. I told the boss <laughs> I have at my job right now. I'm going to tell you the same thing. I, I'm i either really dumb or really lucky uh, because I feel like I've always ended up in the right place. So that either means I, I'm dumb. What I mean is that I am just happy wherever I am or I'm really lucky and I just happen to be at the right place at the right time. So I, I don't really know and I, and I think that – you know. I honestly think that my disposition and my my outlook from being able to make music and have anybody care about it and be able to tour and I'm just so grateful to be here, man. Like honestly, like every day is awesome. I I am I am probably one of the most positive people you'll meet. Um, I I wouldn't change anything. And I, like I said, I can't tell if that means I'm really dumb or I'm really lucky. You're, um, you're so. like the uh, you're like the Lego Movie. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, probably so. Daniel Howie is a Lego person. Everything yeah. is awesome. But see, and I have a big presentation I have to give tomorrow in front of like 15 people at work. And, and you're nervous, aren't you? No, I'm, oh, I'm okay. really not. I know it's going to be okay because I've, you know, I've I've done all kinds of shit before and I've had to, to do stuff I didn't know how to do and I've had to jump up on a stage and be an idiot and not be afraid and you know like that kind of stuff like you said it prepares you more than you know now that being said i've interviewed a lot of people who are in bands who were terrible and i didn't hire them <laughs> maybe i shouldn't confess to that but you know it just as well as i do there's a lot of deadbeats and and people who are just terrible humans who are in bands so don't act like we're all awesome like you and i are and doing things okay but i was gonna you say the, the flips the flip side of that though is even Sometimes the the really good people who are good at taking on the extra weight of something make yeah. those people who don't do anything shine. And then when they're <laughs> stuck on their own, that's when their shitty qualities of either not being, you know, motivated, not being as intelligent with things or whatever, whatever the case may yeah. be, that's where that shines. Uh, but then on the flip side of that, that goes to show how well the person or people. Uh, are at picking up the slack for the others and finding the strengths and weaknesses and making every, like making that weak link shine and be good for what they need it to be. Yeah. And then also being you know a, a born leader. Um, it's kind of weird. I some people 
have kind of said that I, I'm naturally a, a good leader of things, but I typically feel like I'm more of a follower that just gets annoyed with following and then kind of deviates and does my own thing <laughs> right? <laughs> until I'm bored with that. And then I go, yeah, I'd rather follow. Um, so at that point now, where does mouth sounds kind of start fitting into the dissolution of sugar glider and the beginning of just kind of working? Like where did, was the itch always there to keep... I mean, I remember in the official release, I think, that collectively Sugar Glider put on the Facebook page. Uh, and I think... I feel like you were the one who wrote it because I think you had made the comment that collectively all of us will probably do something music-related. And I want to say, like, you... I think it, that's why I think it was you. Because I think I remember someone saying, like, I know, even though I'm not doing Sugar Glider, like, I'll always continue to, do, to delve into music and, and do something on at least the smallest yes. of scales. Um, but again, that could have been Chris cause I know he's in like 9 million bands. So, <laughs> um, so where does, where does mouth sound start kind of coming to fruition? Yeah. So, you know, I think, um, I think for me, mouth sounds is something that I've, I, I've come to, to, to call it mouth sounds, but that's something that's always been kind of my voice and my ideas and my things. I like to think of it as a collaboration with myself uh, minus any of the sugar glider stuff. So anything from, you know, my being 18, 16, 18, when I started really actually writing good stuff and at least stuff that I was willing to share with people, um, <laughs> I, I wanted to, to begin, to begin being comfortable kind of in my, in my own skin saying that I made something. I, I wanted to be able to, to create stuff and, and be comfortable with the, I, I was, I was honestly, and I still am, I'm not really good at being like, Hey, I made this, you should check it out. I'm really bad at that. And that's just because, like I said, I, to me, it's not something that I, I've earned or I deserve or that I think my, what I do is any better than what anybody else does. It's to me, it's, it's self gratifying. If, I can share it in, in any, even if nobody cares, because I get to hear it again after I made it. It's just great. I love it. Um, so mouth sounds is really my my first attempt to try to take some of that back and be a little bit more confident about what I can do and, and really explore that. And one of the interesting things that's come out of that though is I still have this itch to be really collaborative in my approach to creating stuff. So um, the 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 record itself, I've I've worked with, I've worked with the first, pretty much the first person that I've been interested in working with that would come forward whenever I needed something. And I don't mean that to take away from anybody I've worked with, but I think without seeing anybody's ability to like, and I'll, and I'll use, um, I'll use, I'll use Mark Eckert, uh, the guy that, that helped me produce the singer swim, the debut EP that's coming out February 28th, shameless plug. Um, uh, you know, with him, he was a guy who young guy, really a lot of energy, really motivated. Um, I just kind of, threw it out there I think on a Facebook post one day hey looking to record some songs um, anybody have any know anybody that might be interested and I think he reached out to me and was like hey would you want to come to my parents house and like like talk about possibly recording uh, some music and I'm like well okay <laughs> sure why not I don't care like and I think he was really surprised that I would come there which again is ridiculous to me um, and, and he seemed really like excited about it and, and, you know, we talked about what he could do. He showed me some stuff he did and I said, yeah, man, this sounds great. Let's do it. And I think he was kind of taken aback by that too, because to me, you know, here's somebody who loves something I've been a part of before, really has a lot of respect for and, and understanding of my range and my abilities knows, you know, what I'm good at, what I'm not at good at. And it has so much energy and, I really let him take it in a lot of different directions. I mean, you know, we would work together on everything, but 
for the most part, like all his ideas in terms of uh, producing and changing things and adding parts, because he wrote some too on it. Um, I, I wanted it to be an organic extension of my ideas. Like I wanted, I wanted other people's energy to carry it further because I knew I knew that from the Sugar Glider days that that's how that's how you let art become something truly truly wonderful and better than what you thought it would be. And he was a huge part in that. I mean, he, there was so much work we put into it. We we worked per we worked on that record for literally about a year and a half. Uh, but it would be like one day every two weeks for a year and a half or something like that. So it wasn't like we worked on it that, that hard. But with my schedule, his schedule, uh, and our times for me to get down to his parents' house and start working on it. I mean we went to three different locations before we finished the record because he moved out of his parents' house. And that was a big time in his life. And you know he put a lot of time and effort into it too. On top of that, you know – <clears throat> I, I got to work with some of his friends with you know some of the photography and some of the content also some other friends uh, coast records down in Charleston they are incredibly talented um, really putting out some incredible content they work with a, re- a lot of really great bands down in Charleston we had had a conversation just a passing conversation about hey what do you think about releasing your debut EP on coast records and it's just another example of just something that comes like I said, I'm either just an idiot or I'm just really lucky, but there's just so many people out there who I think just want to help make things that they know are genuine and there's no ulterior motive behind it other than to share it. They want to help make those things real, and, and it wouldn't be what it is so far, which is not even that much yet, um, without people like that, that that step up and 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 come forward and, and already are so talented to help bring that up. and. And that's kind of what I it, it kind of turned into, and, and it's so cool to create a new project because in a new project, there's no preconceived notion of what you're going to make, what it's going to be, or who it's for. You really have the, the, the there's the fear that you don't know what it's going to be because it, it can become anything, and it could be terrible or it could be really cool. Um, there's the fear there, but that fear also inspires you know the will to figure out the what, what is the path, what is the mission, what is the defining quality that makes this what it is. I mean that's what that's what creating a brand is. You're you're trying to define something that's un, that's not defined yet, with no basis of how to define it. And when you finally figure that out, it's it's it can be really insightful. Um, and I think to get so many people bought in over the year and a half that we we're working on this record has made it really awesome. And it's it's paying off really big. You know, for me to write songs finally that I can I can point to and say, yeah, I wrote that song. I wrote it, right? You know, not that it was the band that wrote it or we wrote it together, and not feel the need to be humble and push it off on all of us or you know. Uh, or to not take too much credit for something, even if I did take a big part in a certain aspect of it, you know. I think for me to to be able to actually begin to 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 to, to speak with my voice through through music and feel comfortable with it is something I'm still working on. Um, and that's not something I think that I think I genuinely think this record sounds more like me than anything I've ever been a part of. Um, and I think when you hear the record, you'll you'll know what I mean. It's very uh, personal. It's very. It's a lot of me and I. Sugar Glider was a lot of we and us um, lyrically, um, and which is really weird to look back on. But if you listen back to the songs again, think back to um, like Flowers or something from We Crack the Sky. You know, we are flowers at the bottom of a mountain. And then even think about like um, some of the lyrical content, even from the newest Sugar Glider record, The Eyes They See, there's a lot of I in there. So I think I've been on that journey of trying to be comfortable defining myself. And I think that Mouth Sounds is the culmination of that from a writer's perspective. What uh you had talked about there not being any preconceived notions with a newer project, but with coming from something, and we'll even just say locally yeah. in Charlotte, yeah, you don't feel like there were any preconceived notions about what you were doing with you, you know, 
being the singer, being the guy who's playing keyboards since whatever you want to call them, and then as well as playing guitar, uh, you don't feel like there was maybe a more of a what people expected out of this project out of you. That's a good que- that's a good way to put it. You're probably right, and I think that I think that the thing I've had to convince myself of, and I obviously have been successful at doing that, <laughs> is that there wasn't. So thanks for blowing my cover. <laughs> Sorry, I mean it's, I'm just I'm speaking on behalf of the people. I mean. Uh, on behalf of people that potentially are aware of your background in the in the band that you were in, yeah, and because I mean I know for me personally like everything that everyone has been involved in. Because I mean at this point, like I said, uh, Rigo is in two bands. You, this is your first band that you've been a part of. Uh, Robbie was in a part of. Uh, I can't remember what the band's name is, and I always in a few different bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like he had a couple of bands, and Bobby was in a. I think Bobby he's, was in two bands since he's the in two breakup. Bands, yeah. Um, and so for me, like, there's been a sort of preconceived notion to to see how each band sounds, and it's kind of interesting because none of those bands sound like Sugar Glider, nor should they, because Sugar Glider was what it was. But it's yeah. interesting to then be able to see those bands and hear what everyone has kind of brought to the collective known as Sugar Glider, based on some of these other things that they've been doing. Um, so what I'm interested in kind of have seen already a little bit is, is kind of getting to see what you brought to Sugar Glider now sure. through this newer endeavor. Um, and I don't know that that really will, you know, allow me or uh, the collective us to see kind of be able to go back to Sugar Glider and be like, oh, these were probably the parts that you wrote or the things that you did or whatever. Sure. Um, but it, it, it's interesting to see when a collective breaks up to see where the individual parts go and, and what makes them you know what makes what they end up doing and what makes them excited yeah. as far as musically goes that's not that thing that they're known for so yeah. since this is the first example of something that you're doing since would you say 2002 2003 so for yeah. almost uh 12 12 uh, or 11 12 years now you've been known for a certain band and a certain sound so it's interesting to see now basically as an as an adult cuz we'll we can i think agree that sugar glider was a a younger band as far as yeah. like when it started yeah. and kind of the influences maybe that carried over um so this will be you as a as a grown adult as a grown man making music from a grown man's perspective as a as a 30 something as opposed to a young 20 mid 20s whatever um are you have you looking back now now that the record's done and it's getting ready to be released do you notice any of that like in listening to it or is it just the the thrill of it being new music, you're excited to get it out and you've kind of, because you've been working on it for so long, you don't, you're not able to see it kind of so compartmentalized like that or, you know, I don't even know if I'm making sense. <laughs> no, you are. No, I'm following you 100%. Okay. Um, you know, for me, I really think that if you listen to the old Sugar Glider stuff, one thing that's funny is that I kind of feel like the Eyes They See was almost more like uh, trying to go backwards in that maturity. Um Actually, I'm pretty sure it was. It was trying to kind of reverse that deep thinking and those those metaphors that could mean a lot of different things, and you know, to being a lot more blunt about the content and the song and what it's about. Um, and I think that I I think that one thing I've successfully done on this record is reversed that and gone back the other way. I think for me as a songwriter, I've liked to be kind of I've liked to be kind of protected behind. Uh, Metaphors and uh, all a, that. A layer, a layer of metaphor and a layer of, of reasoning that, that means that you as a listener might think one thing that a song is about, 
but I'm going to put things in there that mean things to me that you'll never know about. Right. And that's me. Right. So, you know, just simple things. Um, I can think back to how familiar are you with poor baby zebra? That actually, that was the record I got really into, and so when you didn't play anything off of it, especially the title <laughs> track, when I first saw you, or any time I saw you, I was really bummed because yeah, I always wanted to hear "Poor Baby Zebra." So yeah. I'm actually a lot more familiar with it than I think you would think I am. But yeah. I will say, in in hindsight now, uh, the lovers that was it lovers at light speed and yeah. uh, the eyes I see are probably the two that I listen to the most, just yeah. because of them being readily available you know, through iTunes, Spotify, whatever. I'm, I'm most excited to, to write more stuff. I've intentionally put that off because I didn't think this record would ever come out. So <laughs> I'm excited to write new stuff. I'm excited to, to be able to open a new chapter or close a chapter, however you look at it. It's kind of both. For me, I'm, I'm looking to kind of begin to put my stamp back on the Charlotte music scene, back on just music creation in general. I, it's a big hole in, in my life in terms of, a, I won't say a hole, but a void that's been there that I've known about in the corner of the room that is my, my everyday existence prior to this. Um, and I get to actually begin to share that and be proud of it. It's been really hard for me to hide my passion of, of making music, creating music for my coworkers and one great byproduct of that is that uh, I actually have been forced to to be accepting of the fact that I've been that I'm in a band. I never used to be one of those people who would, uh, and I still don't. Thank God, break out a guitar at a at a party or something like that, and start playing Santeria or anything like that. But <laughs> uh, you know, I think I think that um, I think that it's definitely had made me more comfortable with what that means to be an adult and be somebody who can be creative and hold down a really solid job and, and be professional, but, but also have a lot of really, um, a lot of, a lot of really, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, a lot of things to say. Um, and I think that, I think that now, uh, in the time that we're in, I think that the timing works really well because I think, I think, um, we don't I don't think we communicate enough I don't think we talk about the things that bother us enough and I don't think that we express ourselves adequately uh, or effectively as a as a culture and as a as a species really so I think that anybody's effort to try and tap into that and show that kind of vulnerability and show that kind of compassion and that interest in in things that don't they don't just do to make money uh, I think any effort towards that is really needed and I and I, I I like to think that again you know for me to be able to continue to contribute to that that wood pile and leave it higher than I found it uh, is the one thing I've done in my life and with my life that I can be proud of for sure you know it's something that I've I've been very happy with being able to contribute to and frank, frankly feel kind of guilty about being able to be grateful for because it's been something I've done that I've loved too. So, so I, I, you know, my expectations are to, to be excited to finally have it out, to have people hear it. Um, you know, I, I'm just glad that it's done and it's real. Once it's out, it's actually real and I can stop talking about it saying it's coming. It's, it's like right <laughs> here. Um, no, no expectations as far as it doing anything, making any money. I think, I think for anybody that's listening, if you're doing this to make money, um, you're never going to be happy. If you're doing this to be famous, you're never going to be happy. I think if, if you really looked at it, I think Beyonce is probably not happy. Um, <laughs> I think Justin Bieber's not happy. Um, well, Justin Bieber's not, a prick, but at least well, Beyonce, I don't know Justin Bieber, but I bet he's not happy. Um, 
At least Beyonce is making good music. Maybe he thinks he is, but I think, you know, if you get in music to to make money and to be famous, which maybe neither of them did, um, I think when it gets to that level, it gets really hard to see the important things. And and I like to think that down here on the ground floor uh, is where it's uh, nice and warm. Um, So I'm I'm glad to be here and glad for where I've where I've been able to travel to get to this point, and really glad that I get to to have actual conversations with people like yourself who are doing the same thing, going out there doing what they love and doesn't pay the bills maybe, but you know, it's something you enjoy and you know, I mean, maybe it does pay the bills. I don't know. Who am I? Maybe you're making six figures. I don't know, but (laughs) I know you love doing this. Otherwise you wouldn't be talking to me. So (laughs) I do. Well, I mean, I've, it's been funny because a lot of people have been kind of doing the same, like the self-deprecating, like, oh, you want to talk to me thing, even though some of the people have a bigger name behind them. But the thing is, and kind of, it's it's kind of weird because a few things that I, I wanted to do when starting this, and, and maybe you'll kind of understand where I'm coming from as, as a creative individual, is I understand that I am friends or acquaintances or, or know, you know, like a few set degrees removed away from people uh, yeah. who people know. It's one of those things that I think everyone has an interesting story. Whether they realize it or not, it's just yes. a matter of taking the time to get to know them and, and kind of figuring out what makes that person unique. I would say indirectly for me, it's the fact that people, for whatever reason, and it's always been this way, and even Bridget will have, you know, has said this before, people for some reason are just willing to talk to me about anything and everything. Like, I can yeah. tell you about times we've gone to bars randomly, like in places I've never been. And carried a conversation for an hour and a half with someone I've never met before about a multitude yeah. of different topics. I kind of, you know, relate that just to the fact that I know so lot, so much about a lot of little things that I can yeah. talk in about anything for a great length of time to a degree. Um, but the flip side of that is I think I'm just an inquisitive person first and foremost. And secondly, I think, you know, like I said, I enjoy talking to people. And I think something that I – and you've kind of made the comment, you know, just recently – um, I think a thing that we struggle with as as a society at this point is literally sitting down and, and communicating with someone. Granted, we are literally yes. doing it over technology. Like if it weren't for sure. your phone or my iPad or whatever, we wouldn't be having this conversation per se. Right. But literally yeah. we are talking face to face. We're not – I mean yes, I'm looking at other things that are keeping like you know levels and all that shit. But in the grand scheme of things, like I'm not looking at Facebook. I'm not – you know whatever like i think that's the thing that i enjoy about podcasts is for once it's a medium where two people or three or four however many it happens to be literally sit down and just have conversations like we used to back before like you know when we were kids like and there was no internet and there was like phones like didn't i mean they existed obviously but not in the sense of like phones now where it's like hey where you at okay i'm gonna be there like i was listening to one the other a podcast the other day and they were making the joke like you remember like when you didn't you like you called someone and you're like, hey, we're gonna meet here, and then you go and you just hope and pray that that person gets there on time because if you don't, you don't know what happened to them and you don't have a way to get a hold of them because right. they're obviously not where you are, and you don't know where they are. Uh, right. So it's one of those things like there's you know a lot more person personality and personable uh, discourse happening. Um, and so for me, I think that's the biggest thing that I enjoy about doing this is just literally sitting around and talking to people and getting to know them and sharing their story, whatever it happens to be. Um, but on the flip side of that, it's also talking to people who, I mean, initially when I did this, I didn't think there was much of a theme to it. And I realized over the course of doing this for, you know, about two months now and, you know, having 
probably 10, 15 of these under my belt now, is I'm pretty much talking to people who have done a thing, whatever that thing is, but it's something that they, the inspiration was there. They went through the processes to, to make that thing happen to, right. you know, an end result, whether it be I made an album, I made a documentary, I made a blog, I made a podcast, I did whatever it is. There was the main inspiration for something, a, d- a dream, a desire, a passion. They pursued it to an end result and are enjoying various levels of success in whatever that thing is. And to me, I feel like if five or ten people listen to this per episode or whatever, if the only thing they they gleam from it is the fact that if there's something you want to fucking do, just do it. Like, yeah. if you're passionate about it, pursue it. Make right. yourself happy, and then having other stories of people who have done this in various ways and hearing how they did it, I think, you know, I just hope it, exp- you know, that's my thing. I hope it inspires the people that may listen to this the way it does me, where, you know, I'm surrounded by people who are very creative individuals and who are uh, people who take risks and, and do things, and to me, that's that's kind of what this life is all about. And, and like you said, being happy with who you are and... I mean, that's it. And I've kind of realized that that's kind of what the the theme of this podcast is, is just kind of talking to people who have done a thing that they're passionate about and enjoying the byproduct and the journey and all that. And just and sharing those experiences with people. Like I said, that's everyone, everyone's got, do. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say, everyone's got a story and I'm just kind of helping some of the people I know personally tell their story to maybe some more people that, you know, may not be aware of it. Yeah, well, you know me, John. I'm I'm uber grateful, man. Thank you so much for for spending some time with me. I, I it was good to have a break and, and a, an excuse not to have to work on this presentation I have to do tomorrow. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sorry if the presentation doesn't go as well because of you doing this, but I appreciate the time. Um, yeah. What are the socials that people can find you at so they can you can plug those and people can find you and be ready for this new release. Yeah, so the single, In the Night, is the name of the single. That's on Spotify right now. Um, in fact, if you pre-order the album, uh, the album is called Sing or Swim. Uh, the artist is Mouth Sounds. Uh, and if you pre-order the album on iTunes, you get In the Night with it. It's like five bucks for a seven-song EP. Super good deal. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think we've got three singles out. Or no, two singles out now, In the Night uh, and then Everett. And then uh, I, I may be premiering a third single in this next week before the album comes out. So I'll keep you posted on that one. Uh, yeah, so the socials, um, you can find me on Instagram. That's uh, Instagram.com forward slash mouth underscore sounds. You can find me on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash mouth sounds music. Um, uh, also on SoundCloud, uh, on Spotify, on uh, oh man, what, Twitter, uh, let the music out. Uh, is my my handle on there? My Twitter handle. Um, you can come to my house. Uh, <laughs> my house is in Charlotte. Uh, I'm not going to give the address, but if you hit me up, come to my house. I don't have any food in my fridge, but I got a couple cats, Rambo and Leia. You love them. Uh, <laughs> I just got rid of a king size mattress. What? Um, you balling out on a that. California king now, or what? No, it's not a California king. It's North Carolina king, <laughs> uh, which is. Uh, it's just a little bit more homophobic than the California King. Ah, so basically, yeah. it won't be allowed to go to any venues in your town. Yeah, you you have to. The girls sleep on one side of it, and the guys sleep on the other side. And if you mess that up, it shoots you out of the bed like an ejector seat. <laughs> uh, local humor. 
local humor. It's not funny, but no, it, it really is. It. It's pretty. It's pretty sad, but <laughs> not funny at all. But hey. it's not funny. <laughs> right. I didn't right. find it funny back then, and it's especially not funny now. That's the only thing you have to say about it. But yeah, uh, I'm sure you're kind of in the same boat with that stuff, where it's like it's becoming such a thing that it's. It's so terrible that it's almost laughable. Well, where I live doesn't define me, and it doesn't define anybody else here. You know, I think, honestly, not to get off on another podcast conversation, but I think that things like this, this podcast you're running, the internet, people filming, everything now, I think it's awesome. It's terrible for us to have to dredge through it, but I think uh, people having to actually be exposed to things that were already there before and see them and us have to deal with them, like you said, having these conversations, hey, that's racist, we can't talk about that. Okay, is it? Yes. Okay, why? And then us having to actually unpack all this baggage we've had for you know, hundreds of years as a country and as a culture is really important. It's, it's hard to, to watch, but it's necessary for us to move past and to be able to evolve, I think, in, in, in some way as, as people and to understand each other. So I'm, I'm all for it. I hate it too. I don't like talking about Donald Trump all the time or hearing about him. But, you know, if this is our way of, of hawking up uh, a proverbial hairball to examine what we ate that we shouldn't have, then I'm all for it, you know? Well, I think that's a great metaphor for life. <laughs> and for Donald Trump. Uh, sure. <laughs> Uh, well, again, thank you for your time. And uh, <laughs> No stance from you, I see. That's good. You're uh, smart. You're going to go far in this business. That's for another time. And uh, again, thank you for yeah. yours. So. so that was my chat with Daniel Howie of Mouth Sounds. Um, we are going to finish this episode as we typically do with a musical guest with a song by his new project, Mount Sounds, obviously, uh, called Everett. Um, this song was released if, about a week ago, um, and if you want to hear another song before the record is released on Tuesday, February 28th, you can head to ghettoblastermagazine.com and check out the show's, uh, the song, sorry, Slow DiMaggio. Uh, it's going to be the last track released off the record before it's released again on February 28th. Uh, pre-orders are up for the record. Uh, if you head to facebook.com backslash, I believe, Mouth Sounds, uh, you can find the pre-order links for iTunes, uh, Spotify, or wherever you kind of buy your music digitally. Um, so without further ado, here's the song Everett by Mouth Sounds. Enjoy. Enjoy.